we meet? And do we wear masks inside? Do we um, open up the doors so that fresh air is always blowing through? Do we continue to do video church like this? Do we get on Zoom or FaceTime and talk to each other and all that? And um, and I just want to I want to encourage everybody. This is this is really where we get to be Christians, right? Um, it's easy. It's easy to live the Christian life when you're all by yourself and you're not interacting with anybody. Like, like say, um, if I'm just being a Christian, like, like this Lego brick here, and um, I can pretty much do things however I want to do them, and I don't really have to change myself, and and I don't have to compromise with anybody, and and I can just be what I want to be. Um, but if I want to be more, if I want to be the body of Christ. Oh yeah, I need to fit together with others. Uh, this is Lego Voltron. It's 2,300 pieces, which would, in this example, be a mid-sized megachurch. And um, every one of these pieces is very important. Every piece, no matter how big the set, is very important. And we can all fit together somehow and be totally awesome, right? And um, that's just what I want to I want, I encourage you with Lego Voltron. We built this. We finished it. It took us two years to build off and on. We didn't work on it constantly. But um, we just finished this guy, this middle section over our vacation. And... He's totally awesome. And so, uh, I want to encourage... Oh! Oh! I want to encourage you, um, as the body of Christ, to... Uh, let's, let's seek ways that we, can, that we can fit together well as one body. Um, you know, it... It's a big question a lot of people have asked recently is what is church? What does church mean? What, where does it fit into my life? What do I do about it? Right? And um, if, if we preserve the Sunday morning structure and thing, we can do that. Um, but it's really part of your whole Christian life. Part of your whole lifestyle that you live as a Christian. And um, that our... That hour on Sunday morning is just one 168th of your week as a Christian, and so um, let's let's not let's not try so hard to preserve that one hour of the week that we hurt being a Christian. The others, right? And at the same time, um, let let's not. Let's not hurt that one hour a week that helps us helps us to be a Christian, right? It could go either way. And so um, just as we talk to each other and as we work things out, as we discuss how, how to continue doing church during a pandemic, let's keep, let's keep Jesus at the front and, um, and realize that this is just part of, part of the whole Christian meal is church on Sunday morning. And um, the, there's... A lot of Christians in the world don't even ever get that part of the meal, right? Uh, they don't. They don't even ever ever get to enjoy that. And Jesus is still building His church with them and in them and through them in great ways. So, with that, 
Let's get into Matthew. Hey, so that was just a joke. Voltron's fine. I just dumped out a bucket of Legos over there. I didn't want you to be worried. Didn't want you to be worried through my whole sermon. All right, so Matthew 16. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. They want to test Jesus. Are you really this guy? He answered them, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather and the sky's red. And he kind of gives this adage that they can tell what the weather is just by looking at it. And then he says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So they are trying to manipulate Jesus into saying he's the Messiah and saying he's the Son of God, because then they can, you know, test him in other ways. But ultimately, they're just trying to get God to do their will, right? Uh, if if you're going to be God and you're going to do things the way God does them, prove it by doing things the way I want God to do it. Isn't that rough? Isn't that rough? Of, of it, It's an indictment of who they think God is, right? Who do they think is in control? Well, obviously they think they're in control over God. Because if they can get the Messiah to prove to them that he's the Messiah then they've controlled him. They've gotten what they want from him. And uh, Jesus is just like, you're wicked and adulterous. You're, uh, what does it say? Evil and adulterous. You're an evil and adulterous generation. You're all a bunch of cheaters. And you're looking for a sign and you're not going to get one. Wow. Um, it also shows, you know, how are they being adulterous? How are they? How are they cheating on God? Well, they're cheating by being confused about who has the power. God has the power. God reveals truth, and that truth is true whether we believe it or not. It just is, right? Um, I remember years ago, there was a, a seatbelt. When, when they first made seatbelts uh, like legal, like you had to... Without seatbelts, you get a ticket. That whole thing. And they had this uh, little trailer that went around. And it was a chair that you would sit in. And they would push a button. And you would basically move about 10 feet. And then impact something and hit something. And their challenge was, um, can you protect yourself? Can you stop yourself? And people would be like, oh, you know, if I get in a wreck, I can just... You know, put my hand across. That always happened to me as a kid. Uh, my dad would hit the brakes, and he'd reach across with his arm, and his arm was like the seatbelt, holding me in my seat. Which he is an engineer and like knew about physics. Um, and I'm sure if I, we reasoned with him, he would understand that if we hit something and he flew forward, his arm holding me down would flow fly forward, and that wouldn't hold me in that seat, right? Um, it's just physics. But um, but still, every time he slammed on the brakes or whatever, he had that hand over on me. So they had this little trailer that you'd sit in the seat and you'd fasten your seatbelt. And they'd push the button and you'd slide down and boom! And it was equal to a 30 mile an hour impact. And it was just like, wow! And you really got the truth of how hard 
you hit when you're in a in a seat going 30 miles an hour, and, and it convinced people to wear their seat belts. Um, it was a proof to them. It showed them. But there were still people, even after they were in that, and they saw the truth of you can't put your hands up to stop yourself from slamming into the dashboard, they still didn't do it. And that's what Jesus is getting into here, is you're asking, the Pharisees are asking Jesus to prove to him the truth. And in his compassion and his mercy and his love... He basically says, my job isn't to convince you of the truth. My job is to proclaim the truth. And I really hope you listen to it, and I really hope you accept the truth, but it's really on you to do it. He's merciful like that. He's not going to force anybody to believe anything. Remember, all the scripture all happens in context. And uh, this is building up context for this next event, right? So he leaves. He warns the disciples. They're all in the boat. And Jesus says to them, beware the the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the disciples are all like, beware of the leaven. Like leaven's in bread. Oh, shoot. We did not bring any bread. And they all have this panic in the boat that Jesus is teaching them they didn't bring enough bread. And this is Matthew 16, 8. Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you guys, a little faith. Why are you talking about bread? Don't you get it? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how much leftover you had? We're not worrying about bread here, you guys. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So leaven... In ever since Passover meant something that goes in and puffs it up but doesn't help anything doesn't add anything to it and so leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is all this puffed up that they have that adds nothing that helps in no way and that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees had they had this puff up of pride, of malice, of envy and jealousy and greed and all of that puffed up mixed into the teachings of Moses turned into this terrible thing. And he's telling them, watch out for that. So then they travel to Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who, does this, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Others, you know, if you watch this in a movie, they're all chiming in. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus says, who do you guys say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter just lays it all out. Well, this is a really, really weird place for them to be and to have this conversation especially for Peter to make that proclamation Caesarea Philippi was the uh, it was the Las Vegas it was the Amsterdam it was the red light district it was the sicko part of town Um, it was just 
just evil, just wicked. Lots of debauchery and, and just evil stuff happened there. And it's right in the middle of all these holy Jewish cities. And they had uh, they had a cave there that was fed. This, this spring would make a waterfall and it would go down into that cave. And then the cave would go down deep, deep, deep. And the people of this area, and pretty far away, believed that the god Pan, the, the Roman god, the Greek god Pan, lived in that cave and down in the deeps in in the underworld. Um, that he lived there during the winter, and so since Pan was the god of uh, fertility. Wink, wink, and the god of uh, aggressively pursuing things that you want and hunting and um, and fertility. They would go to this gate, or not the gate, the cave, and they would do all of these really nasty fertility things to wake Pan up at the end of winter so that he would come out and help everybody have babies and have fertile crops and have all kinds of food and, and be fertile. And um, and so they would do these detestable things right there. And to the Jewish people, that was a gateway to the underworld. That was a gateway to hell. Because it was just a, a land of worshiping false gods, land of all kinds of evil, and where where people just did despicable, despicable things. You wouldn't even go there because you'd see it, because it's all in public, and you didn't even want to see the stuff. I don't even want to talk about the stuff they're doing. And um, Jesus takes the disciples there, and it's there. They're standing there, and all this is going on. We don't know how close they were to it, whatever. But they're in that air, just being in that town. Um, you know, every every market in the town is going to sell stuff for the main attraction of the town, which is the cave of Pan. Uh, Pan, just talking about the influence of Pan, real quick. Um, he was a he was depicted as a fawn, like the goat feet and a man's body and horns, and that is what carried on to become um, a, an image of Satan, right? A, a common picture of Satan is the goat legs and the horns and and all that. Uh, that's, that's what Pan turned into was uh, medieval Christianity's view of Satan was Pan. Um, his sort of out of control nature is where we get the word panic. Panic, you're acting like Pan, which is panicking. To panic is to act like pan, right? That's kind of a stupid statement, but that's what that means. And um, and so here they are at at the opening of Pan's house, coming up out of the underworld. And Jesus says, "Who people say I am?" And the disciples are kind of like, "What? <laughs> What's going to happen?" Peter completely confesses, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ was a word that they chose for the anointed one of God. And there could be people that were anointed by God, but Christ was a word reserved for the one anointed by God, the chosen one, the Messiah. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember how I said the Pharisees wanted to manipulate God to prove himself. Well, all of these pagans at the gate of hell worshiping Pan are doing the same thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They were saying, give us a sign that you're the God of fertility. So we're going to do a whole bunch of stuff so that you wake up, come up out of the underworld, and make us fertile. Pharisees and the Sadducees, show us a sign that you're the Messiah. We're going to be righteous. We're going to do holy things and be good and not break the law. So you have to show us, you have to prove to us that you're the Messiah. He says they're evil and adulterous generation. They're not going to get a sign. In this context, Jesus is letting the disciples see that the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the pride, the self-righteousness, is just as bad as the licentiousness and debauchery of the worshipers of Pan. And he is the alternate way to follow Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is revealing it to us. He is revealing himself to us that he is it. And it's up to us to believe him. And he's giving us that option. He's, he didn't force the Pharisees to quit what they were doing, their self-righteousness and their, their legalism and their, their pride. He doesn't say a word. We don't have any interaction between Jesus and all of these people worshiping Pan. Um, I mean, you might think that he would just go up to them and tell them, they're all going to hell and they're all doomed. And what's the matter with you? Repent. He doesn't even tell them to repent. He's just talking to the disciples. Pretty wild. So this next section is pretty controversial. With uh, He says, You're Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, first of all, remember where they are. He's saying, this is evil, and it's not going to prevail against my church. I'm going to build my church. And all the evil in the world is not going to win against the church that Jesus builds. The other part of this is where he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there's a whole string of Christian history that thinks that he is saying, You, Peter, I'm going to build, you're the rock that I'm going to build the church on. I don't think that's it. Because he just said, You are Peter. Uh, he said, This wasn't, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you're Peter, which he's doing play on words that Peter means rock, right? This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And on the rock of revelation, I'm going to build my church. People revealing, people getting it when God reveals himself. Here's why I think this. If Peter was told right here, If Jesus says, I'm going to build my whole church on you, Peter, then why would the disciples ever argue again about who was the best? 
But we have numerous instances where the disciples are arguing, even at the Last Supper. He likes me more. He likes me more. No, he likes me better. No, I'm the best. They would all be like, well, yeah, but he's going to build the whole church on Peter. It's all based on Peter. I think we'd have a whole lot more interactions with Jesus and Peter. <clears throat> if it, it, From here on, it wouldn't become a story about Jesus. It would be a story about Peter, right? If the whole church was going to be built on Peter. Um, as far as Peter being the first pope, I'm fine with that. Um, the whole concept of a pope wasn't invented until the 400s and then really brought into, into the scene of things in the 1100s. Um, that's not a system or a structure that Jesus set up, but that's okay for people to think that. I'm, I'm fine with that. As long as you don't miss the point that every, everything else in that verse, basically... <clears throat> everything else in that verse that it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed truth but God reveals the truth that Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it if I live my life acting like I believe that the gates of hell can prevail against the church I'm going to live my whole life in fear right what am I going to do if I believe my whole life that um, what someone believes is entirely dependent on what I can convince them of, I'm going to be really under a lot of pressure to convince them of the right things. Jesus builds the church, and the kingdom of heaven can't prevail against it. Right there, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were trying to figure out, right? Right there, he fulfills the longing that all those people worshiping Pan with their horrible practices and all the stuff they're chasing after. He doesn't tell it to them, but he tells the disciples, I'm the thing that everybody wants. I'm Jesus. I'm the Savior. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Wow. And Peter corrects him. And Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was like, No, Lord, you can't die. You you can't do this. This bad things can't happen to you because you're the Son of God. And that was a legitimate temptation, right? Um, that's one reason why Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan, is because he's being tempted right there to believe, you know what? You're right. I am the Son of God. I don't need to be getting killed. I don't need to be treated badly. They all need to listen to me. That's not the Jesus way. And then he tells his disciples, he gets everybody together. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is to say, whoever wants to follow me needs to just surrender and be ready for the most shameful, embarrassing, difficult life you could ever have. Or the most shameful, impossible, terrible death you could ever have 
which is awful, right? But then he gives this promise. It's an exchange. It's not just get ready to suffer. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, some of you are standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Whoever would save his life, Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is how much we are not living to ourselves. We are not our own person. We belong to Jesus. And he loves us and he cares for us and he wants to use us to bring more people into love, to bring more people into his body And so, anytime I try to stay to myself, do my own thing, I want to do it my way, I'm not letting God work through me. We talk a lot about, you know, what do we want to do today? What do we want to do tonight? And, uh, you know, I always value hearing all my kids and, and my wife say what they want to do that night. And I say what I want to do, you know, here's what I want to do for fun. But it's only when we're all working together and in some ways denying ourselves, right? I mean, I really like to just sit in a nice chair and scroll through Facebook for five hours. I don't really want to do that, but that happens, right? I just want to sit and do nothing. But somebody else wants to do something active. There's a little part of me that has to die to myself to go do that active thing to serve that person. That's a really simple, practical, everyday example of this. But there's bigger versions. Jesus wants me to go talk to my neighbor. But I hate my neighbor. (laughs) Jesus calls me and compels me to to reach out in love to this poor person. But they're disgusting. Jesus wants me to have forgiveness for this jerk-faced punk that did me wrong. But they're jerk-faced punk. I don't want to have forgiveness for them. All of this is taking up your cross and following Jesus. If anybody... And notice even how Jesus says it. He loves us so much. He shows us so much mercy. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's not saying, alright you guys, we're all going to go die. Come on. Uh, You either die with me or you're going to hell. Come on. Even then, he's offering them. If anybody wants to follow me, this is what is it. This is what's up. This is what it is. If you know I'm the Christ, the Son of the Living God, you're going to want to follow. But if you are going to follow, here's some of the consequences of it. This comes up every day, doesn't it? I mean, this whole this whole chapter comes up every day, where we're, we're praying for something and we're like, God, is this even like? Am I even praying for the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Show me. What's even better is 
God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what I think is wise, and I'm going to trust you to be God. And you might not even show up. And you might not even give me a sign. You might not have any visible sign of you intervening in my situation. But I'm still going to follow you. Matthew 16, you guys. It's good. God bless you. I hope you're encouraged this week. I hope you find ways to just cheer for Jesus, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I pray that you have conversations with other people that uh, help God reveal Himself to them in their situations, in their life. And uh, we'll just continue to build up the body of Christ and grow together. God bless you.